Today's scripture comes from the 103rd Psalm, and the focus is on compassion. Many of you probably know that that word, compassion, literally means to suffer with. In this passage, compassion is lifted up as the central quality required for parenting, for that exacting and exhausting and sustaining brand of love that motherhood and fatherhood require. So actually, as I was rereading this and listening to Seth, um, I'm reminded that forgiveness extends to the person who doesn't leave a note and the person that drives off in his giant pickup. So <laughs> anyway, the reading today is from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Good morning. Though we travel the world over to find the beautiful, we must carry it with us or we find it not. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Where do you call home? A reporter once asked me in an interview for a newspaper. Iowa, I said. I thought you lived in Chicago, she replied. I do, I said, but I'm out of Iowa. I'm from there, and I left there. Then I explained that I'd lived in Chicago for most of my life, but was slowly migrating back to Iowa the whole time. We lived in Hyde Park on Chicago's south side for six years, then moved west to Oak Park on the city suburb border for another six years, and then to Glen Ellen, a western burb, for another six years. We were returning to Iowa in 10-mile increments every six years and would arrive at the Illinois-Iowa border when I was 104. That westward migration stalled long ago, and since then, my idea of home has evolved. Now it's less a physical location than a kind of belonging. It's where my sense of being and my vast longings converge into one thing, something wordless, a kind of knowing or belief that I belong to creation. I think of the big blue stem or blazing star on the prairie how each plant is anchored by its searching for water, for life. As patient and, and persistent as an Iowa farmer, the roots keep spiraling deeper into the darkness on their way home. New one. 
We have a very high-tech communication here. When I was 14, a single summer in Maquoketa, Iowa, seemed to last a lifetime. It was a county seat, a big, small town with 5,000 people, and our little white ranch house was a quarter mile from Highway 61, which led to two cities, Dubuque, 30 miles north, and Davenport, 40 miles south. Beyond the highway, thousands of acres of corn and soybeans unrolled into a green sprawl of endless farmland, which was marked and divided by a reliable grid of barbed wire and gravel roads. Along those roads and fence lines, the red-winged blackbirds perched, vigilant and ferocious, ready to attack any threat to their nests. And high above them, the soaring red-tailed hawks described the wind, kiting on thermals while scanning the earth for a vole or cottontail. On those hot, dry days, I would watch a distant cloud of dust slowly crawl over the horizon, cross the hill by the sail barn until it finally hit the blacktop and abruptly reappeared as some farmer's rusted pickup truck. The highlight of the summer for me was always the county fair in July. My friends and I would eat hot dogs and cotton candy and ride the Rocco plane and work the 25-cent cranes for prizes and huddle near the Tilt-A-Whirl where we'd try to talk to some nervous clutch of gossipy, coke-sipping girls who smelled of strawberry shampoo and apple lip gloss and seemed unreachable and were. The mystery of girls being so deep, we gave up pretty easily and soon drifted over to the grandstand to watch the stock cars rev their smoking engines and wipe out in the mud, or we wandered around amid the sweltering stench of a 4-H barn trying to find a friend who was showing a prized steer. The rest of the summer, we mowed lawns and baled hay and roamed the town and surrounding farmlands on our bicycles with sweaty, reckless abandon under the comfort of an enormous sky. Sometimes we brought our lunch or fishing rods or maybe a few cigarettes someone had stolen from their parents. The days were slow. And though we all had watches and clocks, the sun too measured our lives the rising and fading light softening the edges of each day. Stores were not open 24-7, but 9 to 5, Monday through Saturday. For many, there was still a Sabbath, a day of rest. New photo. My dad was the minister at the congregational church, so my older brother Kendall and I had to go every freaking Sunday. I loved and hated being a preacher's kid. I liked the people and the potlucks, but that summer I was in eighth grade confirmation and my dad was the teacher. He was smart, but not much fun. In those days you didn't get treats or trophies or stickers for showing up. We had to read and discuss a lot of stuff like the Psalms, the Beatitudes, and the Good Samaritan, and then write a brief paper. By the end of the class, I knew I was in trouble. Not because I didn't do the reading or write the papers, but because I didn't believe. 
or not the things I thought I should. On the Saturday morning before Confirmation Sunday, I walked into Dad's office all nervous and riding a river of hormones. My face was breaking out and my voice was breaking up, but I told him that I refused to be confirmed the next day with the other kids. By the way, it's a good thing I didn't read this a few weeks ago right before Confirmation Sunday. I was thinking, <clears throat> thinking this is good timing that was after Confirmation Sunday. Uh, but I told him that I refused to be confirmed the next day with the other kids. Why? My dad asked. I told him I was unsure that I might be one of those agnostics, and I spelled that E-G-G, Gnostics. And I just couldn't answer yes to all the required questions. Do you believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth? Do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Since it was a small town, everyone would know. None of the other five kids were backing out. No one ever did. It would be embarrassing for dad, which is why he was pissed off. Damn it, why did you wait until the last minute? I said I didn't know for sure. He said he thought I was taking the questions too seriously. <laughs> How am I supposed to take them, I asked. Not so literally, he said. We ranted and argued for a while, but then I finally reminded him about all the stuff he'd been teaching us. What about the prison of certainty and the hermeneutic of suspicion and that doubting Thomas guy, I asked. At first he was defensive, but before long he came around and pretty soon we were both laughing at the irony of the whole thing. Maybe the problem, Dad said finally, is that you were the only one who was listening. And that was that. He finally accepted that my skepticism and doubt had come from his teaching. Even though I wasn't confirmed, Dad insisted I keep the shiny black, personally inscribed King James Bible, which were provided for all the confirmands. I did, but rarely opened it until many years later when I attended seminary. New slide. One of the joys of summer back then was fishing with Dad, usually just after supper. The river and woods on the edge of town were a different kind of church for him, a respite from his endless meanings and potlucks and hospital visits, but also from the dark cycles of depression that haunted him, that drugs could relieve but never resolve. Dad and Ken and I fished just below an old concrete dam on the Maquoketa River, on the bottom with bread balls for catfish and carp and with minnows for crappie and bass. The first time we went, I got bored and impatient. It was dusk and nothing was biting except a cloud of mosquitoes. But my interest ignited when we began to catch fish, even one or two, and even small ones like bluegill or crappie. The magic of the dipping then disappearing bobber and the sudden hard tug of the line soon hooked me on the rocky burbling miracles of a river. And I liked the rare quiet time with my brother and with dad, who was happier and more relaxed when fishing. He was a good father, though often impatient and worried or preoccupied with his work, kind of like I am, meaning well, but too distracted to listen well. 
I remember him once coming down to the basement on Saturday afternoon where I was blissfully watching Let's Make a Deal on TV and eating Cheetos and just enjoying a lazy summer day. I could feel his stress, a familiar restlessness that had a mind of its own. He stomped around for a few minutes and then finally asked me if I'd mowed the lawn. I said no, that the grass was still wet, but I'd do it after the show. This frustrated him. You can't spend the whole summer inside the house, he said, now angry. You need to get out. You're like a panther in a cage. The last line confused me, but I'd heard it before. It wasn't until years later I realized he was talking to himself about how he felt trapped and anxious. Next slide. But now I get it. Over the years, I would sometimes argue with my son, Bennett. I remember once when he was in junior high that I claimed he was addicted to his cell phone. That thing is glued to your hand, I said. You never put it down. I don't use it at school, and a lot less than my friends do, Bennett replied. I don't care about your friends, I blustered. You're distracted all the time. You're always looking down at that thing and never fully present. Why can't you just relax? It took me a few years to figure out that whenever I said stuff like that, I was talking to myself, just like my own dad, venting my confusion about the 24-7 digiphrenia of modern life, projecting my own anxieties at my son. I still wonder if dad took me fishing to teach me some patience or to restore his own, or if he even thought about such things. I sure didn't, but I do now. And I remember my father, who died from Alzheimer's 10 years ago this month. I often think of him now on those rare occasions when I go fishing with Bennett. He's somehow with us as we flick our wrists and watch our lures fly out over the sparkling water before kerplunking in the wild current. He is with us as we wait and wait and watch and wonder and dream about the world beneath the moving